Hi, everybody. It's nice to see you. Um, I have to say, this is such an enormous honor. Um, I have so much to say about it, but I'll say that I think in two weeks, it'll be six years since I came here. And I was here just for a week for Vermont Artist Week. And it was an incredibly formative, I mean, a, a, the pivotal moment in my writing life in that it was just a, t a space, um, literal and metaphorical, where you know the artist came first. And I remember coming here and doing the typical waffling, you know, and people would say, what is your thing? And I would say, well, I'm trying to, and you know, no one was interested in that equivocation. You know, you're either, what are, what are you? And it was such an important kind of outside in um, and enabling me to claim an identity. It was already precious to me. So I am very grateful to this place. And thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it's really a thrill to be here tonight. So I want to, kind of read around from a, a few things, inspired a lot by our dinner conversation tonight. Um, I start the book, Black as a Body, um, and then I'm interested, I'd love to have a conversation afterward about it or anything, um, with a story about an incident that happened to me, um, I mean, 26 years ago. Uh, I was in New Haven, I was a graduate student, and I was stabbed by a uh, paranoid schizophrenic who was off his medication. and. <coughs> Really, it was a stab by Ronald Reagan, <laughs> who was deinstitutionalizing de people too fast. So this guy, um, in some ways, you know, his what happened plays a crucial role in how I compose this book. So I want to read just a bit from that piece, Scar Tissue. I've been telling this story for years, but telling is a different animal from writing. In the telling, I have shaped a version of it, one that fits neatly in my hand, something to pull out of my pocket at will, to display and to tuck away when I'm ready, like a shell or a stone or a molded piece of clay. The story I've honed over the years is as neat as my scar. It is smooth and tender and conceals more than it reveals. Here's how the newspaper tells the story. Stabbing spree sends seven to hospitals. Seven people were wounded, two with life-threatening injuries, when a man pulled a knife at an Audubon Street coffee house late Sunday and began stabbing people. The attack, occurring about 10 p.m., caused pandemonium and a virtual bloodbath at coffee on 104 Audubon Street. There was no apparent provocation, police said. The two victims most seriously hurt were covered with blood, and it was difficult to tell how many times they were stabbed, police said. There was a lot of blood, said Detective Sergeant Robert Lawler. There were some very serious injuries. Bloody handprints were visible on a window where one of the victims apparently climbed out. Numerous trails of blood led from the coffee house which is in the city's arts district, near the creative arts workshop and neighborhood music school. We have no idea what provoked him, Lawler said. There were about 10 people in the coffee house at the time, he said. The first time I read this article, I laughed when I got to bloodbath. Bloodbath. It sounded like something from a trailer in a slasher movie. But it wasn't a movie, and there was a lot of blood. Evidently, although I don't remember that part, 
I remember it differently. On the night of August 7, 1994, I walked into a coffee shop called Coffee on Audubon Street in New Haven. I was a graduate student in the American Studies program at Yale, and I was there to work. I had James Weldon Johnson with me, specifically his 1912 novel, The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, about which I was writing a paper. I was having a hard time concentrating that night, so I went to Coffee, which was not far from where I lived and was one of the many spaces in New Haven where students went to read and write and talk. It was a typical coffee shop in a typical college town. I was frustrated with my work, so frustrated with my inability to concentrate that I was giving the evening only one last chance. It was late, nearly nine o'clock, maybe too late, maybe just call it a night. I debated with myself, walking slowly the three yards from my car to the door of coffee. I was probably talking to myself, as I do all the time, muttering about all that I had to do. A man on a bicycle and I approached the door at the same time. Beside him stood an average size, average looking brown dog on a leash. The man was listing on his bike, rocking side to side, as if he himself had not made the commitment to go inside the shop. Maybe, maybe not. Our eyes met. He looked like Gallagher, the 1970s comedian, the same long hair and bald pate, the same thick mustache. Or at least that's what I remember. To this day, when I think of Daniel Silva, I think of Gallagher, whom I rarely, if ever, thought about before that night. I don't remember who went in first, but I remember making the decision not to let the oddness of the stranger bother me. Because he was odd, it was the way he was listening on his bicycle. It was the unsettling way he looked at me. His look was familiar or too aware, not the passing glance of a stranger. Even now I have a hard time describing it. He was odd. It was instinct. I knew something was wrong with him. Or maybe this is just a cliche of hindsight speaking. After all, we're talking about a university town and a coffee shop full of nerds off in their own little worlds, people who routinely talk to themselves out loud, as I had been doing that night. Here I have lingered longer than I lingered in that moment, which passed as quickly as the proverbial blink of an eye. I looked at the man, made a quick unconscious association with Gallagher, went in to get my coffee, and planted myself at a table. I put my keys on the table. I pulled up my note, my book and notepad. I took off my glasses and my watch. No distractions, just me and the page, as naked as I allow myself to get in public. At some point, I looked up and noticed that the strange man had settled into a chair not far from me. I was aware of him as he watched a table full of young girls next to me, presumably undergraduates. They were talking about a sexual encounter one of them had had recently. The girls were loud, sexy, and full of swagger. I had been feeling annoyed by them and their devil-may-care bluster, but now I looked up and saw that the man was staring at them, obviously and apparently salaciously. I felt intimidated by his frank stare, but I looked at the girls and they didn't seem to care, which made me proud of them and emboldened for myself. Go ahead, talk about sex, I thought. Don't let this freak scare you. 
Eventually, the girls left. When they did, the man turned his attention to a young woman I imagined to be a medical student or a law student, judging by the size of her very official-looking textbooks. She tried to engage him in conversation. She said something like, hi. I didn't hear his response, but I do know that not long after this exchange, the woman gathered up her books and left. What happened next? Here's what I told Detective C. Willoughby at 1.30 a.m. on August 8, 1994. For whatever reason, Detective Willoughby recorded this in all caps. But I won't shout. <laughs> <laughs> this detective then spoke with Blank, who stated that she was sitting inside the restaurant when a white male came in who had a dog. She then stated that he walked the dog outside and that he returned. He then pulled out a knife and started stabbing people in the restaurant. She stated that he stabbed her once in the stomach and she then fled the restaurant. She stated that she had never seen the white male subject before and she did not know him. I remember stillness, the hum of low voices and the lights bright yet soothing, like the talk surrounding me. People talking and laughing quietly. Students, professors, writers. I was the only black person present, but these were people just like me, who looked like me. So many moments like these over the years in coffee shops in so many cities, all forgettable, ordinary, and uneventful. But these particular moments on this particular evening stay with me more palpably than any other moments from that long night. The stillness, the quiet, the hum of low pleasant talk. The sensation of being inside of those moments, it is the only real memory I retain from that night. Yet just beyond the borders of that quiet pleasant memory, I can still hear the rhythmic continuous sound of a dog barking outside like a warning. Suddenly chaos, pandemonium, bedlam, topsy-turvy, madhouse, a holy mess, all hell broke loose. The room turned upside down, on its back, inside out, went crazy, flipped out. Other words, other cliches. Fear erupted like a seismic shift in the earth's surface and then charged and pierced and saturated the room like smoke. Fear, a good friend to me that night, chased me toward the back door. But even in the midst of this utter confusion, I paused and listened for gunshots. This was America, after all. I paused not only to listen for the gunshots, but to brace myself, literally tense my shoulders, grit my teeth, and search inside somewhere for the pain, for the tearing impact of a bullet. When I completed that brief inventory and discovered no bullet, I was overcome by a feeling of relief, hope, luck, a chance, and a door right behind me, and I ran. And then I was outside in the back of that coffee house. There were no lights. It was as dark as a bottom of a pocket. Others rushed by me. I don't remember if they were speaking, shouting, screaming, or crying. What I remember is silence, which seemed inexplicable to me even then. I would find out later that what occasioned that queer silence was adrenaline pounding in my ears and deafening me. I don't know how long I watched others rush past me before I walked back toward the coffee shop. 
I don't remember how long I stood there trying to understand before everything in me rejected what I saw and I charged back into the coffee shop to retrieve my watch, my keys and glasses so that I could drive home. Why did I do this? It doesn't make any sense. But however I try to explain it, my stubborn West Indian heritage, a Freudian state of denial, the same thing happened next. I found myself face to face with the odd man and he had a knife in his hand. At this point, the knife would have been, had a substantial amount of blood on it. I don't remember the blood. I do remember him asking him not to kill me. I meant it, of course, but at the same time, it just seemed like the thing to say. I felt I was playing a role. I felt that the die was cast. I had turned and met my fate. But I was watching as much as I was experiencing. My witnessing was involuntary. In the autobiography of an ex-colored man, the anonymous narrator recalls being fixed to the spot while he watches a white mob lynch a black man. Like the narrator, I was fixed to the spot. Why? I did not move because I did not want to excite this man. I did not move because I had to see what was going to happen next. I did not move because I was afraid. I did not move because I was free from fear, as many report feeling in the moments before death. I did not move because I knew that he would hurt me if I did. I did not move because I knew he would not kill me. I did not move because I didn't believe he had the knife I saw in front of me. I did not move because I did not know what to do. Maybe all of the above, maybe none, maybe some combination. I will never know for sure. I saw the knife before it entered me. What was the sensation upon impact? I don't remember. But I do remember that when he pulled it out of my gut, I fell to the ground. What did it feel like? Strange, weird, unusual. Lying on the ground, I beseeched God for help. When I neither felt nor heard a thundering reply, I started to laugh. I knew that I needed a hospital, not God. But I call this a God moment anyway, because when I laughed, my wound gaped open, and I looked down and saw and then felt the thick, warm blood rush over my fingers. It is time to get to a hospital, God was saying. I got up and ran again. I was more afraid of being in the dark without my eyeglasses than I was of running into the man with a knife again. I've been wearing glasses since I was eight years old. The last time I had gone without my glasses in public, I was not allowed to walk down a street without holding the hand of an adult. I had never been on a city street alone without my glasses. I was on the eve of my 27th birthday when I was stabbed. The last time I had been permitted out in public without my glasses, I was not allowed to be awake at 1024, which is the time it has become at this point in the story. A figure ran toward me, a man. I was afraid. I stopped. He must have seen my fear, this man, because he waved his hands in the air and shouted, I'm a good Samaritan a good Samaritan. I trusted his words and his biblical reference and let him lead me to some steps across the street. From Officer Petoniak's incident report, 
composed at 2224 on August 7, 1994. This investigating officer did find one white male subject and one black female subject on the stairs of an apartment complex located across the street from 24 Whitney Avenue. Both subjects had stab wounds to the stomach area and bleeding profusely. Due to the extent of injuries and calling for medical assistance, this officer was not able to obtain any information about the victims. What's your name? What's your social security number? I fired these questions at the white male subject shortly before Officer Petoniak arrived. The young white man, whom I had never seen before, was sitting on the steps a few feet away from me. He was going into shock, and I was trying to keep him from doing so. I kept up my round of questioning, and he mumbled some answers. I'm going out, I'm going out, he said, and fainted. It was only then that I really looked at him. He's white as a sheet, I thought, literally white as a sheet. This is what it looks like, I thought. The young man had pale skin, light blonde hair, and wore a white Oxford shirt. The contrast between the blood and his skin, hair, and shirt must have been dramatic, but I don't remember the blood. I watched him. The more he faded away, the less able I was to ignore what was happening just under my hand. An EMT came close to me and asked about the young man, and I answered him. I talked and talked, told my story, posed as a witness, even as I was seeing sparks and hearing static and the EMT's badge started to blur. Trained to recognize the signs of shock, the EMT cradled my head and took my hand away from my side. His gloved hand, like my bare hand, became wet with my blood. He said something to his partner, who was tending to the white male subject. Suddenly there was a commotion around me. He laid me down carefully on the steps. He held my bloody hand as his team moved me onto the gurney. At some point our eyes met and we laughed. The more I laughed, the more I came to. The more I laughed, the more my wound gaped open, which made us laugh even harder. It was all so absurd. The same EMT came to visit me in the hospital before I went into surgery. He seemed somber and shaken. Watching him look at me, I realized that my situation was dire. I tried to mirror his grave expression and warn myself that getting stabbed was serious business, but I wanted to laugh with him again. The incident seemed, still seemed mostly ridiculous. Emily Bernard, 26, is listed in serious condition at Yale New Haven Hospital. Her birthday is Thursday. On my birthday, a white couple, a man and woman middle-aged, brought chocolates to my hospital room. It just seems so sad that you had to spend your birthday in the hospital, said the woman while her husband looked on sympathetically. I was moved to tears, which was surely a consequence of the morphine, as much as a purity of their kindness. The morphine was there to shield me from pain, a consequence of healing, my body reassembling itself. A word about the pain. It didn't hurt, the knife. That and the fact that no one died are the two things I always make sure to say in my version of the story. I did experience terrible pain on the night of August 7. The person responsible for it was a surgeon on call. 
I lay on a gurney feeling helpless and afraid. The surgeon walked over and without a word to me, or even looking in my direction, plunged his fingers into my gaping wound. I gasped and instinctively grabbed his hand. It was only then that the man looked at me and said icily, don't touch my hand. His eyes were airy and blue and as cold as his voice. I asked questions about what was happening and he refused to respond. Only the attending nurses treated me with any kindness or respect. Whenever I tell the story of the night I got stabbed, I always say that the person who did the most injury to me, who left the deepest wounds, was not Daniel Silva, but the surgeon. John, my husband, knew the story of the stabbing before he knew me, having read an essay about the incident by Bruce Shapiro, who was also stabbed that night. One Violent Crime was first published in The Nation and then reprinted in Best American Essays. I don't know when this came up in the course of our dating, but I remember feeling both a little weirded out and also reassured. Weirded out because it is always peculiar to have someone know something intimate about you before they know you. Reassured because it's one less thing about yourself, about your past, that you have to explain. Even though John was already acquainted with this chapter of my history by the time we met, he has had to sit through numerous renditions I have told over the years. Once, not long after we decided to marry, we were in New York. I had just given a talk to promote my first book. After the talk, we met up with Susan and Brian, who worked at my publishing house in the bar of the hotel where John and I were staying. I recently experienced another bout of recurring abdominal, abdominal pain occasioned by adhesions, but at the time, I didn't know what adhesions, what adhesions were. Adhesions are, in essence, a complex dance between one's scar tissue and intestines. Since the stabbing, adhesions have sent me back to the hospital twice, actually three times. The first time, the dance had been gaining in intensity for years without my knowing it. The dancing stopped, but the dancers were still intertwined. I could no longer process food. Yet I was vomiting, stream upon stream of thick bile, and the pain, it was like being ripped in two, tissue by tissue. I was being ripped in two, no similes necessary. Then as mis mysteriously as these episodes began, they simply ended. Brian knew about the pain I had been experiencing. That night at the bar, he asked me how I was doing. I, I said I suspected the abdominal pain had something to do with the stabbing, although no doctor had yet confirmed that. And Susan said, I didn't know you were stabbed. And I said, oh, you didn't know? And Brian said, you've never told me the whole story. So off I went. I told the story in all of its glory, lingering on the gruesome details. At some point, John got up abruptly and walked away from the table. Brian looked concerned, but I was sure that John was only going to the bathroom. I turned back to the table and to my story, but Brian kept his eye on John who suddenly fell backward on the floor of the bar, flat as a domino. It was remarkable, John falling backward like a tree having met an axe. His head met, went thunk as it hit the marble floor. The lights in the bar came up so swiftly that it was as if God himself had flipped the switch. Brian was suddenly at his side, cradling his head, 
pelting him with questions like, what's your name? What's your social security number? Who's the president? Brian and I must have, been, must have watched the same television crime dramas. <laughs> John lay on his back on the floor, on the floor in a suit jacket. His eyes were dazed, straining to register Brian's face and the words coming out of his mouth. It was all that talk of blood, he would tell me later, the blood that I don't remember, the blood that was, according to police reports, all over the walls. Brian said it was the most romantic thing he'd ever witnessed. <laughs> but I think the fainting had to do with being a man. Women, of course, become well acquainted with blood over the course of our lives. At any rate, the story of my stabbing belongs to John too. My daughters, Julia and Isabella, are not products of my body, but they have been careful observers of and frequent travelers across the terrain of their mother's skin for many years. Since they began to talk, they have had questions. The questions about the, my scar lead inevitably to a knife. What happened, Mommy? A man hurt me. He was sick. Why, Mommy? He was really sick. Like he had a stomach ache, Mommy? Yes, a really bad stomach ache, but it was in his mind and he didn't have any medicine. The girls fall silent, worry tight across their foreheads. It will never happen to you, I say, and it will never happen to me again. Being a parent brings up the question again of what to call the story. Over the years, the incident, the stabbing, my stabbing, the accident, what my parents called it. What does Isabella call it? Your face, mommy, your face. The girls were two and a half years old when I returned to the hospital in the fall of 2008. It was my second bout of adhesions. It was late at night when John and I finally accepted the fact that I would have to go back to the hospital. We asked a friend to stay with the girls while John took me to the emergency room. I can't know what it was like for my daughters to wake up in the morning and find me gone. Gone I remained for seven days. What sense could this make to a two-year-old? Once I was stable, John brought them to see me in the hospital. What did I look like? Hair wild, eyes glassy from morphine, an IV, tube, IV in my arm, an NG tube in my nose. A nasogastric tube goes through the nose, down the throat, and into the stomach. It is as unpleasant as it sounds, and it has saved my life three times now. It was there to decompress my bowel, which was in distress, and was held in place by several rudimentary pieces of masking tape. It hurt, and it looked terrible. I could tell how bad it looked from Isabella's expression. Julia, who never takes anything very seriously, who has a well-that's-life way of approaching the world, hopped right up onto my hospital bed and began fooling around with the call button. Mm -hmm. Isabella, however, clung to her father, her impossibly br big brown eyes impossibly bigger. She stared at the wild-haired creature and said nothing, shook her head when I held my arms out. She was fixed to the spot. Even now, when she remembers the hospital, remembers what it was like for her to see me there, what her adolescent mind seizes upon, what she may continue to seize upon for the rest of her life, regardless of her own wishes or mine. What she remembers is captured in a single phrase that she first uttered in her car seat a couple of weeks after I returned home. Your face, mommy, 
your face. I just want to read a little bit more, I think. I, w- I want to read from this new piece. Um, that I, I um, this piece in the Yale Review that was out pretty recently, and I highly recommend it. Megan, Do- uh, Megan O'Rourke is the editor, and there were a lot of people very excited about her, you know, jazzing this up. And uh, there's a lot of great writing and poetry. I think they're going to do stuff with visual art. I mean, they're, they're just really going all out. Anyway, so this piece is called Stereopticon, which I have been almost literally writing for about, I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> and I'm writing, as we're saying tonight. But it sort of came together. Um, and I'd love to talk about, you know, that process we all go through as artists, how we get it down. Stereopticon, 12 ways of looking at my mother. Mother. What is this word? I am three years old and perched on my mother's hip. We are in the kitchen. My mother mans the stove. My legs hang around her waist, unanchored. I know she will hold me. She won't let me fall. I'm holding a book. What is this word? This word. My fingers move along the page. Sometimes I peer into the pots on the stove, getting so close that my mother is forced to stop stirring. She sinks us into her seat at the head of the table, opposite my father's. It says the two of us today, my mother and me, which will forever be the way I like it. I don't know it at the time, would not know it for years, but every morning she sat in this chair and worked on drafts of her poems. You wouldn't let me cook? My mother complained the first time we saw it, the final time we saw each other. She complained every time she told the story about the two of us in the kitchen and she told it often. Beneath the complaint was pride in her daughter, but also pride in herself for the balance she had struck, mothering, teaching, and tending to her family all at the same time. She offered this story to me whenever I needed to be reminded of her expectations, of the determined woman she wanted me to become. I don't remember this story, but it is a story of my life, of my mother and me, our primal connection, For many years, I believed this ability was a sign of a true mother, a good mother, someone who executed the job seamlessly and always put other work aside until the work of mothering was done. For years, I thought this this image was a portrait of my destiny, my rightful inheritance as a daughter of a mother who seemed born to the role. The story never changed, but my mother's reading of it did. The last time we talked, She told me she had come to believe that the reason I was leaning so far over the pots wasn't that I was born hungrily searching for stories, but simply because I couldn't see. (laughs) I was prescribed glasses a few years later. Visions. I've always been fascinated by a bizarre event Zora Neale Hurston recorded in her 1942 autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road. She was sitting on a neighbor's porch when she was beset by a series of visions which she described as 12 clear-cut stereopticon slides. She was terrified by what she beheld. I saw a deep love betrayed, she wrote, but I must feel and know it. There was no escape from the drama ahead. I knew that they were all true, a preview of things to come, and my soul writhed in agony and shrunk away. 
I've read these passages to audiences before, but since my mother died, I've never been able to get through them without crying. This story is my favorite in the entire autobiography, which I first read during my freshman year in college. I later read this scene to my mother. I remember the look on her face, both satisfied and intrigued, as she put her finger to her lips and looked away. I had known the lines would speak to her, that we were drawn to the same thing, the promise that no matter how painful, life was always unfolding as it should, and it was possible to view all of it with a cold, clear eye of acceptance. There was something comforting in the strange promise that our lives are not, in the end, a consequence of chance or even choice, but the indifferent hand of fate at work. Home. Let's go so we can come back. That's something my mother would say. I teased her whenever she said this. It perfectly encapsulated the most important feature of her personality. Over the course of 30 years, when out, of the room, out of the many rooms of my father's house, my mother made a home. It thrived in the kitchen, which she organized according to her skills and idiosyncrasies. It flourished in the living room, where she sat at her secretary, composed poetry, and kept up with correspondence. It bloomed in the rec room and garden and in the lush plants that she cultivated as carefully as she did her children. By the end, my mother had wound her life down to two rooms. The rooms my brother, room my brothers had shared as children, where she kept her books, and my old room, where she hid her poetry. She kept everything until the end. My mother preferred being at home, and I preferred being with my mother. For both of us, the social world was largely an, an intrusion. Most people were strangers to her, even those she called friends. In the seven years following her death, my, fa my father turned my mother's home back into a house. It was gradual and all at once. It was as if I left the living home one day, and on the next, I returned to its carcass a house whose interior was shadowed in cobwebs, dank with mold, and littered with dead mice in my childhood dresser drawer. But I don't blame my father. He had depended upon my mother to tend to the organs, soul, and lifeblood of our lives while he took care of the whole. Every marriage, perhaps, is animated by a contract, spoken or unspoken, and this was theirs. Twelve. It is not a coincidence that Zorniel Hurston saw 12 visions. In ancient times, 12 was considered a perfect number. Hurston had grown up in the church, her father was a preacher, and the number had, has biblical significance. 12 apostles, the 12 tribes of Israel, for example. The images that appeared before her were compelling, but Hurston was also interested in the idea of a life foretold. The vision is a very definite part of Negro religion, she wrote, the vision seeks the man. The story finds its form. Many fans of Hurston's work don't like Death Tracks in a Road. It is not a true autobiography and that Hurston does more concealing than revealing. She leaves out years and husbands. She loses track of the visions. There are holes where the stuff of her life should be, the things she didn't want to tell. But if you can't take liberties with your own life story, then really, are you free? I gave my mother dust tracks on a road on her 48th birthday. 
It was the summer of my, after my freshman year in college where I had taken a course on African-American literature. Neither my mother nor I had ever heard of Zornel Hurston before I took that course. My mother went to Fisk University in the 1950s where the emphasis was on classical education. She didn't take the one available course on African-American writers. Even at Fisk, African-American literature was not considered a serious subject in the 1950s. I teach African-American literature. Today such, a, today, such a job is not unusual. I teach and write about race. I care about literary legacy and inheritance. But even more, I care about the shape of a story. I like lines, gaps, and blank spaces, all of the things that can't be captured in language, whole lives lived in grace notes. The form is the story. The story is in the form. I'm so excited for her to get it. I wrote in my diary about dust tracks on the eve of my mother's birthday. Only will it be enough. One more section, please. White Castle. It was a tough summer, my mother's 48th. My mother was learning new things about her marriage and her power. I was, too. A week after giving my mother dust tracks on a road, I had a fight with my father that changed my life, or at least the way I saw it. It happened at church. My father, laughing and reminding everyone with an earshot that I was about to become a sophomore at Yale, home from the summer. The usual cute Bernard family hype, I recorded in my diary. It was August, the day before my 19th birthday. At coffee hour, Dr. Edwards, a colleague of my father's, whom I admired, asked me about school, what classes I was taking, what my plans were for the future. She asked if I had a boyfriend. She talked about men and all of their shortcomings. I nodded my head, hungry for her approval, hoping my furious nodding would conceal my ignorance about men. Men are afraid of intelligent women, she said. I agreed. Suddenly my father appeared at my elbow. Be quiet, he said. Be quiet. Hatred bloomed in my chest. He said that, the, that women use that explanation as a cop-out because their personalities are not pleasing. To men, I guess, I wrote. A welled-up, long-denied anger surfaced. To my shame, I cried. I can never beat him, never show him how wrong he is. After church, we went to brunch. A rare treat. My father was as cheap and tight as a fist. It had been planned for my birthday. We seethed at each other, silent, silently daring each other to resume the fight as a waitress seated our family. Then the argument took a strange turn. So you think your mother is an intelligent? Our eyes met. I was dumbfounded. My mother was too. I tried to clarify what I meant, but quickly gave up. Later that day, my father instructed my mother to inform me that he would not send me back to college unless I apologized. I'm free, I recorded in my diary. I don't have to finish school, go to graduate school, marry a nice black boy, or even be a good girl. I can be mean and ugly and let my teeth rot and my voice grow screechy. Even my handwriting looks freer. Everything is out in the open. There are no more secrets to be kept. But I wasn't free, after all. Or rather, freedom would have cost me more than I was willing to pay. My mother took me for lunch a few days later. It was a Saturday. Her eyes were rimmed red, her gray hair frizzy at the temples. White Castle. It was our secret guilty pleasure. I had to apologize to my father, she said. She could barely meet my eyes as she instructed me on how to shape the apology 
and what posture to take. I knew how much my education meant to her, much more than it meant to me at the time. My mother believed in education the same way she believed in God. She let him break her, I wrote. Her tears merged with mucus as she bit into her sandwich. She told me that she couldn't help me. My father won. I apologized. He reminded my mother and me of his power, and I learned to keep myself a secret. I'll stay up there. Thank you. Thank you.